Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everybody, it's Lori Forner. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. Sorry if it's a little bit noisy, but my new best friend, which is an ultrasound I have for research, uh, is old and has a very loud fan. So I don't know if I can block out the sound enough. Um, If you have not listened to this podcast before, welcome. Today's episode, we are talking about um, different types of pelvic floor surgery and where um, the role of physiotherapists fit in and the kind of things that we can do. So we have an amazing physiotherapist from Brisbane. Her name is Sue Croft. Um, I, If you haven't heard of who she is by now, then you may have been in hiding because she is very active on social media and writes an amazing, in-depth, passionate blog. And I will put all of that information in the show notes afterwards. Um, so Sue Croft is a Brisbane physiotherapist with a special interest in pelvic floor dysfunction, including urinary incontinence, prolapse, bowel management, and pelvic pain for women, men, and children. She's a passionate advocate for continence issues and speaks at physiotherapy, nursing, and medical conferences, and does many many lectures to the general public. As I said, she's discovered the power of social media. She's on Twitter, Facebook. Um, I don't think, don't know she is on Instagram. I have seen that as well. Um, But she's great at disseminating information and she's determined to educate the public through her blogs, promoting the simple strategies that can change the lives of those people with bladder, bowel, and pelvic floor dysfunction. She has written two patient-centered directed, sorry, (laughs) written two patient-directed books, Pelvic Floor Recovery, and then the book that we're talking about today and what sparked this podcast is her book called Physiotherapy for Gynecological and Colorectal Repair Surgery and Pelvic Floor Essentials. So today's episode, we have a great discussion of the different types of gynecological and colorectal surgeries that people might be thinking of or having, where physiotherapists fit within that, as in what can we do before surgery, immediately after surgery, and in the long term. We talk about what to expect with getting back to things in daily life after surgery, including exercise. We talk about pessaries, um, and it's a really great episode, I think, for clinicians, but also people who are considering or who have had these surgeries. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And I need to give a big shout out to the latest patron sponsor, um, Fiona Rogers at Pelvic Floor Exercise. She's sponsored some of the podcasts before and she has become a patron. So if you want to support the podcast, you can head on over to podbean.com in the search bar, put in the Pelvic Health Podcast, click on the podcast and up in the top corner, there's a little green button called become a patron. Now, essentially, these are monthly donations that you can put $1 
or $2 or donate however much you want. The good thing is you can cancel at any time. So some people have just done a one-off donation and canceled after a month. For those people who do sponsor, once you have um, become a sponsor or become a patron, you have access to some special episodes that I have put in there. These special episodes are just a way of saying thank you for sponsoring. Um, one, I have talked about inter-rater reliability of the modified Oxford scale and the Paratron, which was based on a research paper. I've gone through a conference talk I did on physiotherapy management of stress urinary incontinence and kind of when we play a role. I've talked about another paper going through pelvic floor safe exercises and intra-abdominal pressure. Um, so if you're interested, then please sponsor. If not, you get to still keep listening for free. Don't worry about that. Um, and I will stop talking and let you get to the episode. All right. Actually, I just lied. You are going to get to the episode. I just wanted to warn you. I tried Zoom again and the sound quality was really poor, even with my headphones on. And so I really apologize for that. Okay. You can listen now. Cool. Well, again, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk about um, this. So I thought we yes. could talk about your, well, we'll talk about um, physiotherapy for post-operative gynecological and colorectal repair surgery, which essentially is the title of one of your latest books. What prompted you to write a book like this kind of from the very beginning? You did this in 2011, your first edition, yeah. was that right? So, look, I had wanted to write the book for about 10 years and I was sick of writing lots and lots of bits of instruction down on handouts and giving it to patients. And so I decided to think I wanted to write a book and then I procrastinated for a long time. And then I had a little tiny life experience of my own where I, for a very short period of time, they were talking sort of uterine cancer and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to really do this thing. And so I literally sat down that weekend and started writing. And then, of course, on the Monday, I got the thing that after I'd had a little procedure, it was all not that and something else. And so, but, the, you know, I'd started. And so I sat down and every weekend for, you know, a couple of three months, I just wrote and that was the first book. And so it's up to the fourth edition now. And I wanted to write it because... Women don't understand what's going on. Doctors don't really, gynees, urogynees don't really have the time to answer all the questions that women have got. And so they are often strong, silent types and don't really sort of want to get down to the nitty gritty. And so I think that I felt there was a need where women wanted to read about things and then maybe even know more pertinent questions to ask and, um, you know, discuss that with the doctors. So it, I, it's up to the fourth edition now because it's been a learning experience. Um, when I first started, I was very dictatorial and dogmatic about it and I've learned over the years that, you know, we all have to change and get a little bit more uh, sort of adaptive to the needs of women and what is the evidence. And so you know the evidence is evolving all the time and so that um, now we're up to that fourth edition I'm trying really hard to be a lot more um, sort of conciliatory about things that I might have in 2011 said don't do this and don't do that and I so I hope when you've read the book you've felt that there was a definite change in the language and a definite change in in encouraging women to look and see well what 
what can they pursue um, even though they've had some gynae repair surgery so, or colorectal surgery? Well, that's what I definitely got from the book, but also just speaking with you um, on numerous occasions um, <laughs> and having had a follow kind of your path since I started doing it and seeing you, yeah, just, you know, being, being able to um, evolve in your thinking, which is what I always hope that I do. Like the more that we learn that I don't get um, stuck into positions because I know that I might read, read something or hear something and I'm really biased and I want to hold that close to me. <laughs> so yes. I'm hoping that over time I can yeah, keep that open mind. Um, yes. So when we're talking about gynecological and colorectal surgeries, can you give us a bit of a brief kind of overview of what kind of surgeries we're talking about? So with the gynae surgery, probably one of the most common ones is a hysterectomy and a woman might undergo that for um, heavy bleeding or she might have prolapse and there's a little bit of a discussion and that evidence seems to change from conference to conference as to whether or not, you know, if you've got prolapse, it's better to leave the uterus or take the uterus. And so I leave that discussion up to the um, surgeon to present the evidence. And just while we're about it, before I forget, um, I'd really like to point women now to some amazing resources. So um, there's, I've got the names here so I don't forget them, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. And this is all going to be, I'm going to give you some extensive notes so that, that women can access that. Um, and basically these are resources for consumers and they're the three that are relevant to um, women who might be looking at doing some research on this is um, one on the treatment options for POP, for pelvic organ prolapse. One is treatment options for urinary incontinence and the other one is um, transvaginal mesh. And so, of course, I think if women want to look at all the things that are out there and become really good, uh, well-informed pa patients who are undergoing these surgeries, then they're not going to get any surprises. So we're back to a hysterectomy. That's why I brought that up because I wanted you to um, for the patient to know that there, there's lots of stuff on the internet to help them ask pertinent questions if they're unsure about should I leave my uterus, should I take my uterus. And so, there's lots um, of there's, very bad things on the internet as well. So pointing them. Absolutely. So we're pointing, I'm pointing you to the things that are, um, are authorised. And the other one, of course, very good side is UGSA. Urogynecological Society of Australia, is that right? I will confirm that absolutely <laughs> there's a couple that i mix up all the time together ages and agsa but yes, AGSA is yes. Side, and agsa has got some really good simple things about what all the names of the surgeries are so we've got um different types of prolapse repair surgery so we've got an anterior posterior wall uh, uh repair um we've got uh, a repair that has an apical suspension so it holds the top of the vault up um, we've got a sacrospinous hysteropexy and a sacrocolpopexy. So the colpopexy has got some mesh in there that's an abdominal procedure that helps to hold the vault up but the uh, mesh is inside, not in the vaginal walls. So just so people are aware, no vaginal mesh is allowed to be put in Australia anymore. The only uh, sling that's allowed is a transurethral sling for stress incontinence. So, um, and that is at this point in time, and it's always watch that space, but your surgeon will always be able to help you. So 
when surgeons are talking about mesh, the mesh is not going in the vaginal walls. It's going into uh, the top of the vault to help suspend it from the uh, sacrospinous ligament. Um, so there are also uh, surgeries for repair surgeries for um, prolapse from the rectum, uh, and they are known as a DeLong's procedure or uh, rectopexy. Um, so there are also other procedures that happen around um, the anus for uh, hemorrhoids, but I often encourage women to really exhaust the conservative strategies for managing fissures and hemorrhoids because um, if there's a lot of banding that happens for the hemorrhoids, that ultimately much later on can often lead to a little bit increased risk of fecal incontinence because those actual, um, that that bit of swelling around there actually contributes to some continence. So if you have too many bandings over your lifetime, you might find that when you're in your later years and already having some compromise to the internal and external anal sphincter, there might be more fecal incontinence. So I sort of try and say, let's manage it conservatively and see how we go with, uh, with that. The other surgery that I think is worth mentioning is um, uh, colpercleisis, which is when the... Uh, vagina is sewn over. It's only for women who are going to be non-sexually active. But when you've had recurrent failure of surgeries, it's often actually it's it's now being increasingly offered to women to help uh, you know solve that particular dilemma of a recurrent failed surgery. So pretty much we're just in a general sense talking about prolapse surgeries and incontinence surgeries. Absolutely, yeah. Whether so, that's for bladder or bowels. Or bowel, yeah. So when you are counselling patients, um, do you feel like they should um, know which surgery that they're going to be having? Because a lot of patients just go, well, I'm just, I'm having my prolapse fixed. And so you've listed a whole bunch that are on one of those websites. Um, some patients I find are interested, but then others are just like, no, nah, I just want it change so do you try to get them to learn a little bit more and take some initiative as well I think what I do Laurie is say to them don't sign your consent form like I sign my bank documents you know it's really important to read them and understand them and a classic example is when a lady had surgery for stress incontinence and she signed her consent form which very clearly said and one of the risk factors for following this surgery is that you might develop an overactive bladder and so she was really upset after a surgery when she started to suffer with urge incontinence leakage with the urge to go and so literally I got her to bring in because I knew she had gone to someone who does have very comprehensive consent forms and I said bring in your consent form and let's read it together and so we did that and I highlighted the bit that actually said that and she said, you know, I never actually really read that. Mm. And so rather than saying, I think you, we have to have a trust and a belief in the surgeon. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we, I certainly don't go out of my scope of area with physiotherapy. I do exhaustingly try and con exhaust the conservative strategies and I say to them, I do talk about the evidence about if they have got significant pelvic floor uh, compromise, that there is an increased risk the surgery has an increased risk of failure rate. Um, but I don't try and say, don't have this operation or do this one, because I really don't know. I don't have to do it and I don't really know enough about it. And I, but I do write extensively to the 
surgeons about the extent of what I might find. And um, you and I know that um, we have to be cautious about when we're saying that someone maybe does have some levator avulsion injury. Um, and I usually always say a probable or possible avulsion injury and that this is going to increase the size of the hiatus, which is going to increase the risk that perhaps this surgery has a higher rate of failure. And so I counsel them about that and I write that in letters to doctors so that they're aware of what I've found, and, but I don't try and influence them unless there's something really odd about what's going on and then I just say, you need to go back and talk to your doctor. But I certainly encourage them to do read that consent form and understand what they're going to go through and understand what the side effects are, that there might be um, some dyspyronia and that there, this could be an ongoing um, problem and that if they are very sexually active, that this could be a barrier to them getting back to having intimacy and so that they need to understand about all of that. So that's why I often get them to bring it in and we go through it if they're not understanding that. So dyspyronia being painful being sex. Pa so painful sex, sorry. Yeah, painful yeah. sex, yeah. Is there a benefit then in women seeing physiotherapists prior to having gynecological or colorectal surgery? Yes. Look, I really strongly believe that it does help women to understand what's ahead of them. I, say, I think if we have if someone is directed to have a total hip replacement they're often given a series of exercises to strengthen muscles around their hip joint to know what's coming afterwards and i think it's imperative that we encourage women to do strengthening exercise or sorry i'll come back a step to see a pelvic health physiotherapist to actually understand are they doing a pelvic floor contraction correctly you and i know laura that the evidence tells us that up to 30% of women have, uh, uh, when they attempt a pelvic floor contraction, may actually bear down when they're trying to do it. And so what happens is that they're just given a leaflet or read my book and they're not actually assessed and they might be practising something that could actually make their incontinence or their surgery worse. So I think it, it's very important to get that individual assessment from someone who is used to doing internal examinations um, I, I think that you can learn a lot from an ultrasound and I use my ultrasound all the time only really for seeing if someone is emptying their bladder properly. So I pop it on when they've got a full bladder. I ask them to go and void, having taught them how to sit properly to make sure that they're relaxing their abdominal and pelvic floor muscles, see whether that comes back with a, near, a very close to zero residual. And so I always do that as a benchmark before they go for surgery because that's a good thing to see whether they're having any post-surgery uh, retention, um, which is often quite a common um, issue that arises uh, it can be between 100 to 150 mils and that will be accepted by the surgeon and people are allowed to go home from hospital but any higher than that and they start to you know talk about teaching self-catheterization but certainly um, you know I don't use my ultrasound for assessing muscles um, except if I'm doing it per uh, the perineum, which is the, where the external tissue of the vagina is for other reasons. But always I think it's important to have that internal examination where possible so you can actually palpate 
Is there a thick, spongy muscle? Is there any pain? Is there a sign that there might be some thinning or avulsion going on there, which is going to significantly impact on the potential for that surgery to be successful or not? In the literature, some of the surgeries can, the, the, some of the literature talks about up to 80% failure rate if there's a significant bilateral avulsion on both sides with woman who's got poor tissue quality and maybe overweight, you know, her risk factor for that surgery failing is fairly high. And is that for I a think, specific surgery? I know? think, I can't remember, but I think it's actually... Um, I think when you've got a more significant prolapse, three compartment prolapse perhaps, yeah. and you're not having any support up the top. And I think that's why they would look and choose to put some mesh there to give it some extra support because of that risk. I think that the belief is that surgery is like the pinnacle and why muck around doing all this other stuff? Why not just go straight for the surgery? And when you look at someone who, who a footballer has had an ACL injury, um, you know, I think it's up to, you know, 90%, 95% success rate um, with some of those surgeries. They get back on the football field and they run around and they might re-injure if they get tackled weirdly again, but they certainly don't have a fairly significant um, uh, success rate with some of those operations. But with this surgery, it's so complex and we're dealing with an area that is the anatomy is liable to be changed it's influenced by so many other forces such as how much intra-abdominal pressure is generated by a large belly sitting over the top of it and um, what how mobile or immobile is the person and how what's their general sort of health status um, are they not very much of an exerciser and therefore their general body tone and muscle tone is not good so I think that there's a whole lot of factors that can affect and you know, cause problems for women. So I think we've got to really be champions of the conservative, uh, and I really do hate that word conservative, but I, there is really nothing else we can call it because that's what it's recognised in ICS terminology. Um, and what it means is the preventative things, making sure that we first assess can women do those public floor uh, exercises properly, teach them a regime, and if we quickly just talk about that um, the evidence tells us that we should be trying for maximal contraction. In the first eight to 12 weeks, we usually bulk a muscle up if you look at the science uh, of, of um, muscle training. Um, the bulk the muscle up in eight to 12 weeks. After that, we can drop the regularity back to once or twice a week. And I almost hated writing that in there because, you know, once you get it down to once or twice a week, are you going to remember it all? And so I do, I might have it there, but I do really say, look, you're better off doing some every day just to keep that routine and have it going. Um, and then the other important thing is if we stop it altogether, then we lose strength at 5 to 10% per week as soon as we stop doing pelvic floor muscle training. So I think the, we've got to be very good at getting that message out that long-term adherence to this pro, of this regime is important. So they should be coming in at least three months before their planning surgery? Absolutely, because that gives us an opportunity to explain what's normal about bladder and bowel function, um, go through good defecation position, so the position for passing a bowel motion to minimise pressures, 
down the vagina, direct them more down the rectum um, to more completely evacuate and to get over the habits they've developed of either straining or to leaning back excessively and pushing or perhaps needing to digitise so that these are the things that the habits they may have got into. We can look at what their diet is and brief, you know, very, you know, superficially advise them about what are the what what are the general health guidelines for fibre um, intake to encourage them to have a softer stool and to give them some advice about products that might be able to do that if they're not if the, their diet is not sufficient. Um, we can teach them about the knack of bracing so that prior to increases in intra-abdominal pressure they're going to learn not just to do that pelvic floor muscle training to strengthen the muscles, but to actually engage prior to the cough, the sneeze, the lifting the grandchildren, so that they're actually giving some preventative support, closing off, using the muscles to lift and counteract that increase in intra-abdominal pressure. I would hope that, the, that we're not seeing patients for the first time because they're booked in for surgery. So they're coming at three months booked in for surgery. I would have been disappointed not to have actually had the opportunity to see, well, would a routine of everything we've talked about, um, perhaps what I haven't mentioned is looking at exercise and, and seeing does there have to be some slight modifications to making it more friendly for their pelvic floor. Um, but also um, I would have liked to see if they had found a pessary had been trialled by someone to see whether a pessary would help. Um, you know, pessaries, as you know, uh, Laurie, are making a huge comeback um, from a few, only really a few years ago being said they're only for old ladies who are not suitable for surgery and they a, a rigid plastic ring would be put in and it would be changed every six months with a visit to the gynaecologist. Um, and so now, of course, pessaries... Uh, there's a huge range of styles of pessaries designed to fit most women and their prolapse type or their problem with incontinence. Um, so I would really hope that if they had, and, and I find what happens sometimes, the pessary might be mentioned, um, but in a cursory way, and a message is given that it's not very suitable and and so I suppose sometimes I do explain that, you know, and show them and say, let's give it a little go and see whether or not it worked. And they're often really surprised at how fantastic it is. And they're really happy. And they, and even if they get a chance to postpone their surgery a few months to get their general, to lose some weight, to, if, it, if it's a year and we've got someone who's really significantly um, overweight, and they can get back to doing some exercise and that's why their weight has ballooned because the prolapse has been so distressing for them um, or their urinary incontinence has been so distressing that they've stopped exercising. Their weight balloons and then, of course, the problem gets worse. But they're not a good candidate for surgery at that stage. So if we can get them to um, put a pessary in and have a nice program, encourage them to go and see a dietitian or whoever it is they need to help lose weight to be monitored by the GP perhaps, and then that's going to have a better outcome. We can give them specific pelvic floor muscle training, teach them the knack, teach them defecation position, and generally be encouraging that this is something that may well give them anything from a couple of months to, you know, a couple of decades. So I, I feel like we've got to be champions of pessaries as well. And you and I work very hard at that, yeah. And your research is going to be fabulous for that. 
10 years, give me 10 years. <laughs> so, so if somebody, cause like you said, not everyone's going to be able to find a pessary that works for them and people are not going to be successful with conservative management. So if somebody does then have gynecological surgery, if we think, if we kind of break it up into the immediately following for the first few weeks and then thereafter, um, what do they, you know, what do we need to consider in those first few weeks once they've had that surgery? And does it kind of matter depending on what surgery they have? Or is this kind of generally in the first few weeks, we need to consider these things? So look, I think obviously someone who's got significant pelvic floor muscle trauma and got a um, has had a significant prolapse with not a lot of muscle there. Um, I would be a little bit more cautious about my advice compared to someone who's having a mid-urethral sling um, and, you know, their advice is going to be very different. So it is something that you actually have to tailor to what the patient's pelvic floor is like. And that's what I've really tried to do in the book. I've really tried to say you do need to get that pelvic health assessment from pelvic floor assessment from your public health physiotherapist so you are in fact very aware of what are your um, muscles doing and what is what are your risk factors but you know certainly for a mid-urethral sling it might be two weeks and you're pretty much back to doing um, you know quite a lot of things but if you've had a significant uh, you've got significant avulsion you've had a very major surgery then um, from the plastic surgery um, literature that tells us the tensile strength of collagen and the tissues back to 80% of its normal strength by about 12 weeks. So that's where that 12-week figure has come from. And I suppose that um, that doesn't mean you lie in bed for 12 weeks. Uh, and, and if you take it to some of the um, discussion that's come about working out from urogynecologists as how do we work out what women do and not do is come from the orthopedic literature where they're getting people up much earlier. So, you know, my husband had a total hip replacement and he was walking to the toilet an hour later after he came out of theatre, um, you know, on, on a wheelie walker. And so that's quite different to what I used to do with the patients 30 years ago. So um, it is really uh, an interesting thought. Um, but uh, and there's some literature, uh, some research that Margaret Muller has done, um, looking at women and not not doing the restrictive um, uh, uh, the restrictions on activity. Um, and the only research that's been published so far is looking at them three months down the track. And she, and I have spoken to her, and and there's other research coming. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what that shows. But I would certainly say to people, once the initial, manage your pain very well. Like I think it's really important not to be heroic and just have the pain well managed in hospital. Um, very, very, very good management of your bowels. And usually they are put on an osmotic laxative um, from in the stay in hospital to try and make sure the bowel motions are really, if people are, are familiar after all these years of the Bristol stool chart, um, and usually the three and four is our go-to um, uh, sort of level of softness. Probably a five is better when you're having post-op. So it's literally quite, quite a deal softer and there's no pressure there at all. Um, making sure that when they go home, they are having opportunities to rest and recline. So if they've got young children, it's very difficult for them to, um, you know, not be, to be sort of 
giving an opportunity for gravity to um, take away swelling and to not have a, uh, you know, a whole lot of pressure pushing down all the time. Um, but I think once that initial pain is settled, getting to walk, and I say to walk around the house and walk around the streets so you're never very far away from the house if you feel a lot of drag or ache, um, and then gradually just build it up. And I think what, like we use in pain, um, our pain sort of treatments, pacing and grading, and I think it's really sensible to pace how you return to walking and the distance you walk and just listen to your body. And if you come back the next after doing a walk and you might have extended and you feel drag and ache, well, you might bring it back a bit and just, you know, shorten the walk. Um, so in that, for, you know, really for a significant repair surgery, I do counsel them about 12 weeks and usually intercourse, um, you know, many times if I examine a patient at six weeks post-stop, um, there's a lot of significant stitches in there and it's going to be almost a situation where we get his pyrrhonia, which is pain for, the, for the, the man if they're going to try and have intercourse like that and most women are not interested at all and most um, urogynecologists do counsel them about saying more like eight to, uh, to ten weeks. But again, in the literature, they, they say there's what is the evidence about that. But I think you can just be guided by how much pain you're still feeling. Um, and always use a really good lubricant to make sure that when you do first go back to intercourse that there's plenty of time, plenty of opportunity for arousal and plenty of lubricant to make sure that it's uh, going to be comfortable. So the first 12 weeks yes. is really where it's not that you do nothing for 12 weeks. It's just, you know, the first couple weeks you are going to be doing a lot less and you do kind of slowly build back up to where you were before. So if somebody was say running, because there's a lot of runners, um, yeah. I know the old, well, whether it's still old, but the advice used to be, you know, years ago that once you'd had a prolapse surgery, you were never to run again. And from, mm -hmm what I gather, that information has changed people. Not that people are more lenient, but we're learning more and more about what people can and can't do. If somebody, say, doesn't have a lot of risk factors for prolapse reoccurrence, so pelvic floor muscles have, ret you know, have returned, well, or they have good function, they have good resting tone, and they want to get back to running. Um, do you wait until, say, 12 weeks to get them back onto a running regime? Or, Yeah. Look, I, I've had a few girls, and what I have probably done is encourage them to cope, which seems weird, but I start with a pessary like we've got a soft pessary now the um with a different sort of um silicon and so it's really soft um they're a gynecologic um and they're also making a ring as well and a softer sort of uh thing uh, uh material so if i i would definitely not do it before 12 weeks and i'd really want to make sure that uh we have at our clinic we get our girls to assess them running and I'd probably do that pre-op um, so that their running um, style is, yep. is efficient, their stride length, the way they're breathing, they're not trying to grip the whole time while they're running um, and I would probably first I, I would definitely consult with the surgeon to say that they're happy that they run um, and I think we've got to consider the whole patient and I'm very aware of that after years of 
you know, us all talking now on Facebook groups that we've got to be mindful about the whole patient and the head and, and that is often very important. But also their head gets done in if they have a recurrent prolapse. So um, we've got to be counselling them well and that's why I say, and I've had the surgeons say, let's go with a pessary first up and see how it goes. And so, and look, the girls are very good at, and we start off with a very shuffly type run for 100 metres and then walk for 100 metres and then gradually build it up until they feel confident. And I, I really do have quite a band of ladies who come back every year and they, even though they can assess themselves, you know, internally, they want to know that, everything is what they feel it is and I think that's a really important thing because what we pelvic health physios can do because we are up to date with the literature and we are reading the journals and we are going to the conferences is we can reassure them there is new evidence coming out and there is actually you know we're hearing new things all the time and so I think it's perfectly fine to say come back every year because I might have something new to tell you and which is really important but also it you know I'm going to ask you and how are you going with all the things that we're bracing pelvic floor muscle training generally keeping your weight in a nice healthy range and keeping those bowels soft and they just are really good at at then saying I'm really happy to hear that everything is holding up and so I think that it's not over servicing to say to people come yearly and we'll see how things are going but coming back to the running I think um, you know, look, it's, and I think is what we talk about all the time, Laurie, is looking at the person as an individual, not trying to just do a blanket thing with everybody. And you can't say that you can never, you, you should never have to modify exercises. I do believe that at times we do have to, for some really, you know, significant um, levator trauma, there are some people who are not going to be able to do some things. And we just try in our heart of hearts to make it as, um, you know, maximising their potential and not limit them and scare them and do all that. But they're definitely, we, they are really poor. Sometimes they're a poor candidate for failure rate and we've got to just try and see what we can do. But, and you know, often those patients who are poor candidates for failure rates um, don't, uh, aren't able to find a pessary that works really well for them as well so then oh, they have they really, even less support yeah. so using yes. the pessaries post surgery post surgery you yes. obviously are going through the um surgeon with that like you're yes. as busy as only they only put that. it in for run they only put it yes. in for the run yeah yes. they don't do it all the time they just put it in for the run and take it out absolutely yes. look i i am very respectful of the fact the responsibility that a surgeon Mm. has when they're operating on these complex patients i really i I think it must be so challenging for them and the more we know the more challenging it becomes and so i am never going to say anything that is going to i want them to find out what the surgeon wants and if i've got a a problem with something then i just talk to the surgeon and say give them a ring give them a letter if i can't get them and just say what 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 you know is there a problem with us doing this could we try this she's desperate to run you know can we try this particular pessary um just for the run and then she takes it out again so um and it might not be appropriate to wear a pessary although these new ones are very soft they're a very soft silicon they're like the silicon that's around the CPAP machines and so it's super soft and very 
much less uh, of a risk factor. And if you're only putting it in for the run and taking it out, then I don't think there's a problem at all with using it. But we have to liaise with our colleagues yes. who have done all the work and have got the responsibility and carry the risk of um, every, you know, if that, you know, something goes wrong, they're the ones carrying the risk. Yeah, and coming back to the, you know, reviewing them on a yearly basis, even patients who don't have surgery, um, when we're dealing with things like prolapse, which can be quite transient, um, yes. I think, and people change their physical activities, their life changes, I see it more of a it's monitoring someone like in a year let's see if anything has changed and especially I think especially women who are doing strenuous activity because we don't have enough information and evidence to tell us in five or ten or 15 or 20 years um, what is going to happen so we need to monitor those people absolutely and I think I I don't drive it but the patients often drive it but sometimes when someone's come back and they've been you know it's been five years or six years and if obviously things have deteriorated I then try and say look let's do this yearly so you don't actually get because oftentimes it's actually quite retrievable like hmm. you remind them about oh you've stopped you know using this position you've stopped doing that your stool is harder you you're do it, you know this has happened you know you can actually give them lots of um, and get them back to where it was. And I'm, and one of the biggest things is getting people to treat their coughs, persistent coughs, you know. Mm. If they've got persistent hay fever or they've got a, a persistent cough or they've got a reflux-induced cough, you know, go and get the reflux treated so that the cough stops because that's what's going to have triggered things off. Mm. Um, you know, maybe it is time. They might have not liked the idea of a pessary five years ago, but now they've got grandchildren who bring a new strain of something home from childcare and they've got them once a week and so they're getting a, 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 a something happening every week. So let's revisit pessaries again because it's incredible how women's mindset changes, you know, from absolutely not when the surgeon suggests it to when you coax and and explain and and allow them to process the thought it is quite you know when you think back to when pre-children if I think back to thinking when I was the 23 year old you know Sue when she was young and and you know the thought of putting a ring inside you to help hold your insides out is a pretty you know it's a pretty amazing thought and so and if you're only hearing about that when you're 50 and you've got a bulge that suddenly occurred and they're saying, let's put this thing, and they can be quite big and, and daunting, the look of them, of course women are going to take a time to process that. And we have got to be the ones to not give up on that. We've got to be the ones who keep saying, no, look, come, let's look at this again. I think this could work. You know, let's have a little go. And you don't have to buy it. We can just have a go. You go for a little walk, see how much. And often the walk they say oh my goodness I feel so much lighter I feel so much better without having that bulge there so I think we've got to be the ones that you don't just say oh well that didn't work you didn't like that idea we're not going to do that let's just operate we've got to be the ones not to say don't have that surgery but say look this could help you in the next couple of months just make your muscles work a little bit more efficiently so let's do it as a very short-term thing to just allow you to get a little stronger and what they often do is then say you know what I'm really comfortable with this and I want to go overseas and I, I want to do that with this pessary in rather than doing it when I've had surgery so it's really something that actually allows them to 
um, you know, as a little stopgap interim breathing space, getting used mm. to things. Yeah. Um, so anything specific from like once, so we've talked about um, what kind of the role of physiotherapy before surgery and then generally some things to expect in those first three months and that might be covered and then um, that generally <clears throat> physiotherapists will monitor or should be monitoring women kind of every year thereafter. Is there anything kind of else that you wanted to cover with respect to surgery? There is, there is a big thing, I think, and that's with regard to mesh. Um, I think that we, we know there are women who have had mesh put in. And you'll see in the book that I say um, that if you have mesh in and you have no pain and you have no problems, leave it be, leave it alone. One thing that's very important is if you have mesh in your vagina, and this, I'm talking about mesh in the vaginal walls, if you have mesh in the vaginal walls, you really, and you're postmenopausal, you really should be on local estrogen, either vagifem or avestin, and, and that keeps the tissues plump around it and helps um, with stopping or, or minimising the risk of erosion. Um, but we have a big role to play in that we might feel the mesh there, but the woman is asymptomatic and we can keep a good eye on that. And um, we cannot scare them or worry them, but just say to them, I can feel it there, that's good. If you're not bothered by it, you're having no pain, you've got no pain with intercourse. If you get recurrent urinary tract infections, if you start to get sudden frequency and urgency. And I recently had a lady who has had some mesh suddenly um, eroding into the bladder and you know that her symptom was a little bit of pain but mostly it was bladder symptoms that went a little crazy and got some recurrent uterine tract infections and so um we I sent her back to the doctor she had a cystoscopy and yes there was a fairly large um bit of uh, mesh in the bladder and she had to have some really major surgery so i think we have that role to play by actually just knowing that they've got mesh in um, what type of mesh it is, so is it is it one that's relevant? Um, and the other thing I say to people, like, you know, if you have mesh in and, you know, there are a lot of women who are now in the class action and so I think what's our role is really to say you don't have to still have pain when anything is settled from this class action. You know, our job is to try and help you fix up your pain. If you have mesh in situ and you've come to us with pain, it's really important to say you don't need to have that pain two or three years down the track when that litigation might be settled. That it's a hindrance, it's a barrier, it's a roadblock to you getting better to actually think if my pain starts to get better, I'm not going to get a justification for what's happened to me. So I really want them to understand that, you know, getting better from the pain is important because chronic pain, as we know, is um, the more we practice having pain, the, the, the longer it goes on. So, um, you know, I, I think we have a really important role to play in counselling women and helping them with their chronic pain and monitoring that mesh. Some women have no idea if they have mesh or not. Is there an easy way that they can know other than trying to track down the surgeon? Yeah, so I always track down what they've had because um, I 
will, you know, I mean, look, there's some people who can't actually remember the name of the mm. surgeon, but, yeah. um, you know, if they can't, then we've got to just try and see what happens um, and monitor it with that. And then if there's something more serious, but I mean, the reality is most of the meshes that went into the vaginal wall are in, involved. Um, and so there is a mesh, mesh register so that I don't think, I think you can register with it, but you don't have to have, um, you know, a, a particular, it's just if you've got, we want to know, the government wants to know now if you've got problems so that we can. The specific surgeries that we're using mesh was anterior wall. So if somebody had a bladder prolapse or. Yeah, bladder prolapse or rectus seal, they were using them yeah. posterior, but mostly anterior wall and, um, and, and the top of the vault, it would go right through. Yeah. But um, coming back to what we said is, you know, I think it's important because if she's unsure, then she might worry if mm. she doesn't have it, yeah. uh, if, if she, she's got it when she actually doesn't have it. So yeah. I think that's the other advantage of tracking the surgeon down. Yeah. So you can actually say you don't have mesh, so stop worrying and get on and enjoy life. So the other interesting thing is that particular lady didn't want to pursue, she wasn't, a, a, um, you know, she wasn't part of the class action and she just knew in herself that that was way too stressful for her. And, you know, we all know that having anything to do sometimes with lawyers is a very stressful procedure. And good on her for actually saying, I've had some fantastic surgery done now. Her bladder is spectacular. I can't believe how good it is. Um, and she doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And that's her decision. And I think sometimes you've got to know yourself that there is a lot of stress generated by these things and that might be quite counterproductive to your healing process. So, yeah. We will have a gynecologist on the podcast discussing mesh and surgeries. Um, so we, we will go through that. And in your book, in the latest, latest edition, you did um, discuss a little bit about it as well, didn't you? Yeah, mostly just yeah. to say... Um, you know, if it's going along well, don't worry about it. But yes. if you have pain, if you have uh, recurrent infections, and you may not have really even linked it. Like, I mean, it sometimes you don't really realise, even when you might see some things. Some people don't watch these things. They're not on Facebook, so they don't know. Um, but these are signs, and that's why I put it in. I'm not there to do a dissertation on mesh. I'm mm. there to say if you've got mesh and it's not causing you problems, get on and enjoy life. If, but I would counsel them about having local estrogen, that it is really important that they have local estrogen even if they haven't to this point and they've got no problems. I think it's important um, to keep the tissue plump around it. Yeah. The other thing that I really want to stress with all of this is this concept about watch, watchful waiting. And I think the surgeons are getting really good now at watchful waiting and that, you know, every So what is that? Watchful waiting is really saying you can have a significant prolapse that's almost at the introitus, but you're not actually symptomatic in the sense that you're not getting drag and ache, it's not impeding your exercise, that it's not making you feel miserable every night um, and you go to a, um, someone and they, they grade this prolapse, which makes it sound very severe and significant, um, when in fact you're, a, you're virtually asymptomatic. You're defecating, you're not having any trouble voiding, you can void and empty your bladder properly. And so it's quite 
a, a, a really good idea to do this watchful waiting where you actually just monitor it and that's where we can play a role in conjunction I think it's important you always communicate with your surgeons so you know that if they've sent you to them and you know most surgeons who send a, a woman to a physio is really very interested in them getting mm. some help and not necessarily diving into surgery and I think that's our we should have that as our our position statement is that we are there not to say don't go and have surgery we're there to say well let's encourage you along this watchful waiting pathway that the surgeon's obviously chosen because the evidence is now telling us that that first line of uh, treatment for physio uh, for uh, pelvic organ, organ prolapse is conservative management lifestyle changes defecation position doing pelvic floor muscle training, doing the NAC and, you know, using a ring pessary if it's able. So all of those, the evidence is there very profoundly supporting us now. And so, and and most, all of the, the latest conferences I've been to have been absolutely hammering that home, which is wonderful for us. And it's been a big change. When you're as old as I am, like you go through this amazing situation where you've gone from you know the other end of the thing where we're just not included in that pathway to now we're at the first point of call in terms of trying to help women so i think it's watchful waiting is uh, is really useful yeah and your book would help with watchful waiting as well because there are so <laughs> many tips in here Do you, can i just tell you what my favorite part is oh um, yes the, tell me Laura. the tr the the travel tips <laughs> oh, they were excellent. The travel tips and, um, you know, the little things that people don't think about that we always have the discussion with patients and we never think to write down because we're like, surely you would know, you know, how to modify carrying your groceries or all these little things after surgery um, or your suitcases or luggage or doing all these things. And we say them and we tell them we don't write it down and they completely forget because they're, you know, mm -hmm. insignificant in their mind. And um, yeah. yeah, those are some of my favorite parts. Well, the travel tip, traveling is important as you age. It's very important to travel. You can never afford it when the kids are little. And uh, so what you want to do is do it and not be miserable on your trip. And so, you know, managing your bowels effectively, making sure you, you know, you've got those little hints like pack light. And, yeah, you know, all these, be, yeah. All those simple little things there, they're little, little pearls that you know you think oh okay that's it seems common sense but you know people don't really think about it and look that and and the book has got fatter and fatter because patients often say oh this is really you, I think you should do this put this in the book so so you know the patients have contributed a lot to the books as well but in terms it's, of just it's so comprehensive and um it's written in a way that is so easy to understand and I think like not just from a patient perspective but professionals I know lots of physiotherapists myself included and um, lots of doctors who recommend it to their patients as well yeah well that's thank you very much for that where are you directing people in order to get their hands okay so look they can buy it from a number of sites obviously if they buy it from our site which is www.pelvicfloorrecovery.com um they if they're um patients if they're just people in the community the books are 20 dollars each um and that is so then cheap. plus the post <laughs> well look it, I want to keep it reasonable so yeah. that it is 
is easy for people. It's a piece of, you know, a cup of coffee and a piece of Black Forest cake. And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, definitely more worthwhile than that is. So, Wait a minute, $20 um, for cake and coffee? Where do you go? The, uh, well, maybe to, for two of you to have that. <laughs> okay. Have it with a friend. But um, postage is um, $5 to Australia and then it's whatever it is to the country you live in is, is we just, whatever the Australia Post charge us, we charge, pass that on. It is also available, uh, sorry, there are health professional prices. So the health professionals do get a discount on the numbers that they buy. Um, so the more you buy, the more cheaper, the cheaper it gets. Um, and then uh, it's also available at the lovely Fiona Rogers uh, pelvic floor exercise. Also, it's available on Amazon. So, um, yeah, it, there's a few places available. Well, but put man, all the links in the show notes so people can will, have yep. access to the resources that you mentioned and then anywhere where they can get the book as well. I'm going to put this up because I talked a little bit. You said why was I, how did I come back right? writing a book and it's a little bit about knowledge and wisdom and I've got wisdom in there because I'm so old I try to say I'm wise I'm not old but this so a couple of is wisdom is not a product of schooling but the lifetime attempt to acquire it and, and that's Albert Einstein but the one I really loved and this is what I said to you about podcasts why I get a little worried myself because on the spot you say to me tell me about that research by you know so and so and I think oh am I going to be able to recall this one of the poets whose name I cannot recall has a passage which I am unable at the moment to remember in one of his works, which for the time being has slipped my mind, which hits off, hits off admirably this age-old situation. Now, that's by P.J. Wodehouse. And what it means is that, you know, as you get older, it, you know, that recall is is just, it's always at your fingertips and you know you've read it, but you just can't quite remember it. But it have been uh, lovely to work with. Uh, Laurie and I've sort of managed to scrape through it without forgetting too much so thank you very much no thank you that was excellent thanks for listening everyone please check out the show notes at my blog so www.laurieforner.com there's a podcast tab then you can find the episode and all the show notes will be in there Sue's put together an 18 page Um, PDF document to go with it which has so much amazing information I was expecting one page so really generous it's great Um, and check out her blog the information will be in that PDF but it's suecroftphysiotherapistblog.com so have a good day guys